It's over 9,000! Super Elite Warriors, and welcome to Final Forum, the podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the Bikini. And, uh, for starters, I'm feeling much better, as I think our listeners can hopefully hear today. I was struggling to make it through the Godzilla commentary. Yes, please, please don't get sick again. I'm not very good at running the uh, the recording stuff by myself. <laughs> I I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, this is our this is our Dragon Balloween event, our final part of it. And I guess I guess I shouldn't have said this is the podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball because this is the the podcast for the discussion of all things Don Dracula. Oh, wait a minute now. It's tenuously tied to Dragon Ball. <laughs> and yeah, today we're going to be taking we're going to be our taking our final Dragon Balloween episode, our 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 Halloween spectacular, our Halloween spooktacular as it were. Excellent wordplay. Uh that no one has ever done that before. Absolutely. I can confirm this is true. <laughs> But this is our our final our final Halloween episode, and uh, there's you know we've talked a little bit already about why we're looking at this episode is because there is a Dragon Ball creator involved, and we'll talk even more about that later. But we thought we thought <laughs> it would be a good one to do because it is it's Halloween. This is Dracula. Those those things go together. Sure, like peanut butter and jelly. You know, in terms of in terms of Dracula movies, do you do you have any familiarity with like the Universal ones at all? Uh, I mean, there's been so many, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> um, probably my favorite would be uh, Interview with a Vampire. Okay, I know that's... bold choice. That's. That's more gen- general vampires than Dracula, specifically. All right, fair enough. But <laughs> Bram Stoker's is really good. I mean, Gary Oldman knocks it out of the park. Gary what Oldman's you, awesome about in that, that one. I think Winona Ryder's quite good, too. It's it's really Keanu who drags that one down. Fair point. 
But the movie's really good. That one is, that's a movie that I remember coming out when I was younger. And I'm quite sure it's rated R. Because it's very bloody and violent. And at one point, Wolfman Dracula bitings a girl on top of a graveyard. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That that happens. <laughs> uh, but I remember that movie coming out and my parents going to see it and coming home and they, like, hated it. Uh, be- <laughs> especially my mom. And I think that's that's a very much not a movie for, like, your mom, you know? Well, it depends on the mom, I guess. <laughs> and so I, so I kind of avoided it for a long time. And I finally saw it for the first time, like, five or six years ago. And I was... I was. I was very taken with it. It's, It's got that great gothic horror feel to it, you know? Yeah, I, and they do a really good job of ratcheting up the tension when obviously the audience knows this is Dracula, but yeah. the main character is completely clueless. Yeah, and it's – it's the. I thought the, the production design was, was excellent. I just – I loved the look and the feel and the aesthetic of the movie. It was – it was really a really cool, like, bringing into the 20th, well, I guess the other one's in the 20th century, but bringing into <laughs> the into the 90s, like, an adaptation kind of of the the uh, the Bela Lugosi one. Yeah, definitely. Which I also, I, I like that movie fine enough as well. Uh, the What I'll say about that one, if you've never seen it. Is it is really good. Bela Lugosi is the best Dracula, I think. Period. I think he's awesome. But the movie itself, directed by Todd Browning, is not very well directed because it's one of the earliest talkies. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's very much directed theatrically. Like, compare the way it's directed to Frankenstein, which I think is like a a year or two later and the camera in Dracula is just like static. Like it's just pointed at a scene and that's it. Whereas the camera is much more dynamic in like Frankenstein. It's even more dynamic in the Spanish version of Dracula, which was actually filmed at night on the same sets as the Todd Browning film. Oh, nice. Um, And that movie, the Spanish version is, it's a much worse Dracula because it's not Bela Lugosi, and Bela was amazing, but it's uh, it's <laughs> so much sexier. <laughs> well, I mean, Spanish. It makes exactly. Sense. <laughs> worst Dracula has to be, I think, this this is it may not be unanimous, but the worst Dracula has to be, um, oh, and I can't remember the actor's name, but Blade Trinity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's the guy who's heat wave in, <laughs> in Legends of Tomorrow, uh, D- Dominic Purcell. That's it. Yes. He's yeah, quite a, a bad Dracula. It's not great. I was gonna go with uh, All Things Twilight as the worst Dracula. Is there a Dracula in Twilight? Like a character named Dracula? No, but I want there to be just so I can beat up on those movies some more. <laughs> And then there's Dracula Untold. That was not good. So that's some. That's that's like I'm trying to think. I've read the Dracula novel. Have you ever read the, the novel? I have not. You got me on that one. Okay. It's 
this is this is I think an unpopular opinion. My opinion on it is that it's kind of boring. Okay. It's it's <laughs> it's told in a lot of um letters, like it's like letters and diary entries and so it has to me it has kind of a passive voice to it that to me just reads a little dull. So is that like a it's like a found footage book? <laughs> I guess it was it was Blair Witch before Blair Witch. And then uh I think you, the one thing we you cannot talk about Dracula without at least mentioning Christopher Lee. Who I think played played Dracula the most times in all the Hammer I mean, movies. Abby, the guy is like he's he's honestly what I picture when I think of like classic Dracula. He is he, he's a good Dracula. Oh, when yeah. he's trying at least. He is the there's the <laughs> one movie and I don't know which one it is, but in one of the Hammer movies he like he was like mad about doing it because he was sick of doing it and didn't want to be typecast as nothing but Dracula anymore. And so, like, he refused to speak any lines. <laughs> Petty. I love it. And then the other Dracula I'm I'm familiar with and I have seen is, did you see the miniseries for BBC that got put on Netflix? Yes, I did. I thought that was pretty decentish. I really liked it, and I think Clay's Bang, or Clesh Bang, or however you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah, your it, guess is as good as mine. It's Danish, so it's probably like Clesh Bon. You know, mm-hmm. like um, <laughs> I think he is an excellent Dracula. First of all, and yes, I will it, agree with that. He's very good. It was, was it four episodes? I want to say yes. I'm pretty sure it was. It was only three. The first two are spectacular. Like five out of five. Oh, yeah. And then the third one kind of fumbles it a little bit. But I still think it was good enough. Yeah, I mean, it was fair. It was at least doing something a little bit different with Dracula, honestly. Yes. Oh, you know, we didn't, we also, we didn't talk about Van Helsing's Dracula. Have you seen Van Helsing? Of course. Uh, I think it was a, uh, I think it was a decent portrayal of Dracula. I like how they, uh, sort of weave together, uh, Wolfman and Frankenstein into the story. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and then it was full of beautiful women too, on top of that. So I do not like the movie. And I have like a weird relationship with that with that Dracula because it's it's like bad, but I get the feeling it's like it's the right kind of bad. It's like it's so over the top and theatrical. It I think he's got the right kind of idea of he's got the right performance for the movie that I think everyone thought Van Helsing was going to be. Yeah. I was going to say, he, he. it almost seemed like he got different notes on how to play his character because everyone else seems to sort of play it fairly straight. And then Dracula is just so over the top and, and just exaggerated in so many ways that it's it, it's 
kind of messes with the tone a little bit. The movie only comes to life when he's on the screen. Uh, Richard yeah. Rocks, Richard Roxburgh or Roxborough. But anyways. <laughs> but anyways. To, let's take to all bring those expectations. Back. Let's take all those expectations and just lower them. <laughs> because uh, that's what you get with Don Dracula. Mm-hmm. So Don Dracula, uh, eight episodes, only four were ever actually released. So I'm not sure how we have eight episodes, but hats off to whoever managed to get a hold of those. Uh, but to start, we should probably introduce our main cast of characters. Uh, we have obviously Don Dracula. Uh, we have his daughter, Chocula. Uh, their manservant, Igor. Uh, their pursuer, Van Helsing. We have <laughs> – this is the worst character – uh, an overweight woman who is ugly, who stalks Don Dracula and has a huge crush on him by the name of Blonda, breaks into his house on multiple occasions and even, like, completely just flattens his manservant just to get to him kind of mm-hmm. stalker. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, and their shenanigans are usually recapped by this, this little uh, character called Yasu the Bat, who's a literal bat that just from time to time just – like recaps the things that we just saw or like gives us a small explanation in all honesty, you could completely remove this character and it would not change anything about the show at all. So right. who knows why he's there. And then all of these characters are currently in Japan and the plot essentially just follows the wacky hijinks that vampires typically get into. I'm kidding. No, they're, they're not even close, but still, <laughs> The plot itself, the general format for each episode, uh, contains like one major thread that puts our characters into situations that spur different gags and jokes. Plot thread usually is resolved by like Chocula doing something to save the day because, oh, her dad is such a dope, he can never do anything right. Um, the gags themselves range from like Don Dracula being hounded by this uh, fat, ugly woman to Van Helsing being an absolute jerk at an airport to Dracula having an umbrella for a nose because his ashes were mixed with other things and his body reconstituted both himself and the umbrella because that's how Dracula works, I guess. And I know this explanation is long and confusing, but that's that's how a lot of these gags are set up. And I just kind of want other people to feel my pain because <laughs> <laughs> starting with uh, episode one, uh, this is basically just sort of an introduction to our characters. Nothing super crazy happens. Uh, it mostly focuses on Van Helsing moving to Japan to pursue Dracula, ends up getting a job uh, teaching Chocula's high school night class <laughs> because apparently she needs to go to high school for some reason. And this high school has night classes. Let's not think about that too much. Yeah, because doesn't she say at one point, too, she's like, oh, I'm only 150 years old. Yeah, and it's like, why are you even going to school then? What is, <laughs> and and it, like, all of the interactions with the kids take on a completely different light after that fact. <laughs> uh, but anyways. Because, uh, yes, she to, has a crush on a certain boy. I can't remember his name. Uh, I can't either. Like, that's that's how memorable this guy was. He showed up twice, I think. And it was completely uninteresting both times. He- he gets he gets mentioned by name in the very first episode, but not shown. And I'm not good at knowing like what a 
boy's name or a girl's name in Japanese is. <laughs> and so, like, at one point, Chocola says, like, oh, I, I can't go because it's something like Keita or Kaeda or what, you know, like, whatever. You know, one yeah. of those kinds of names. Um, I can't remember it at all, what the name is. Lives here and I don't want to leave them. And I'm like, oh, it's like her friend. And then, like, right. two episodes later, we finally meet that character, and it's a boy that she likes. And you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's what's going on. Wait a minute. How old's this kid? How old is she? 150? <laughs> Something's not right here. Back to the first episode. Van Helsing gets a job teaching high school night classes. But then the running gag with him is that he suffers from a really bad case of hemorrhoids, which constantly serves as an excuse to remove him from a scene whenever he has Dracula dead to rights. Or, you know, to poop in his coffin. Whatever the episode calls for. Episode 2 is focused on Dracula and Chocula. Like, th- it starts out, they go to, like, Shinjuku, and then Dracula just leaves his daughter in a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> After doing a musical number. And then he gets, like, bugged by these high school students who are, like, cosplaying as Dracula. And they, like, try and rope him into this... They call it the Japanese Friends of Vampires Association, which is okay. I, I don't know why you'd want to make fun of or make friends with a vampire, but they really want to. <laughs> they end up roping Dracula into uh, coming to their club by promising him beautiful women, um, and then this gets turned into like uh, them doing a trip, uh, uh, like a cave expedition um, that he gets selected for dressing up like a woman to try and bait Dracula because that's why they're going to the cave is to meet Dracula. So he ends up becoming bait for himself, which is a pretty decent concept, but then it doesn't really like go anywhere because they just get lost in the cave and then Dracula just leads them back to the surface. Except by the time they get back to the surface, the sun's out. And so Dracula just immediately turns to ashes right then and there. Mm-hmm. And then, like, his manservant comes over and, like, sweeps up the ashes. They take it home. I guess there was – they used, like, an umbrella as a torch. And so the ashes from that had mixed with his ashes. So then when they revived him, now half of his face is an umbrella. And that's where the episode ends. <laughs> episode three opens with Dracula having fleas. Blonda showing up to harass him again. But then those two problems uh, somehow take care of each other. The fleas jump onto Blonda. Blonda runs away. I guess it all works out in the end. <laughs> While that's going on, uh, Igor takes uh, uh, takes in a shipment that's this strange painting of like an ugly person, uh, ugly man with like sharp teeth and all this stuff. He hangs the the picture up, um, and then when it's finally noticed by Dracula, he says, "You know, no, take that down. That that painting's ugly. Why would you do that?" They go to take it down, and they find that the picture has now affixed itself to the wall, and they can't take it down. Haunted picture. It's kind of a spin on Dorian Gray. Uh, the man in the painting at night comes out of the frame and starts to chase Chocula around the house, calling her Blonda, Blonda. Chases her up to the roof where he starts to <laughs> he starts to melt in the rain and he starts to look like that guy from Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. You know the one. <laughs> I call him Melty. <laughs> Uh, but it's ultimately revealed that the man inside this painting is Blonda's ex, and he he needs her help in escaping this curse that's trapped him in this painting by having her burn the painting. 
So Chocula, you know, like basically throws a drape over the painting, tricks Blonda into coming over, has her light the painting on fire. The guy falls out of the painting, finally sees Blonda again for the first time in like years. Oh, by the way, he used to like abuse her and was a terrible husband. Yeah. And probably deserved being put in that painting. But let's not talk about that right now. Is completely surprised because Blonda is now uh, bigger. She's gained weight from when he last saw her. Is immediately disappointed. Tries to run away with her chasing after him. There's so many things wrong with this situation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like a, a spin on Dorian Gray with the painting. It was it, honestly this was probably the best episode out of the eight, in my opinion. But I mean, the bar is not really that high to begin with. <laughs> Moving on to episode four, beach episode, which for those of you that are familiar with anime, there's always there's always a beach episode. This beach is just basically there to show off, I guess, Van Helsing's like workshop or something. He's busy uh, working on anti vampire measures that he can like mass produce and sell to people. And then his place gets raided by the cops. And uh, when he goes to show off what he's working on, he's basically got a bunch of, like, sex dolls in the back room <laughs> of this place. The guy, this this detective uh, Mirai that busts in is, like, constantly just suspicious of Van Helsing. And so, like, every time Van Helsing explains what it is that he's doing, he'll immediately respond by twisting the words and trying to make him sound like a criminal. Obviously, Van Helsing's not getting anywhere with this guy. Mariah arrests him. They drive off. Uh, there's a gag with him crapping the backseat of a cop car. While he's uh, busy um, being detained by the cops, uh, Dracula and Chocula show up at his place. They go to investigate, and the sex dolls come walking out of the house, and Dracula's all for it. He thinks it's great. He goes to try and bite one, determines that they've actually been filled with garlic powder and <laughs> wants nothing to do with them. Um, and then somehow one of them ends up on the ground with the back ripped open and there's a fin sticking out and then this fish person crawls out. But essentially the uh, the vampires and the fish people bond over being illegal immigrants in Japan. Uh, the cops show up again dropping Van Helsing off. Mirai sees them and goes on a rampage essentially shooting his guns at these guys and they just yeah. jump into the ocean and swim away. Uh, episode five revolves around a an upcoming exam for Chocula. Dracula just advocates for cheating because why not? It doesn't matter anyways. She's already 150 and still in high school. She should already know all the answers. Uh, but he even goes so far as to create these elaborate crib pencils where you look in what would be like the eraser end and there's like a small lens and then there's uh, – it's, it's a whole thing. But essentially you look inside the pencil and you can see – crib notes essentially he packs them in chocula's bag without her really knowing she goes to start the exam finds them realizes oh my god my dad's trying to get me to cheat and just like chucks them across the room van helsing finds them and immediately you know accuses her of it she denies it thus the parent teacher meeting dracula actually does the honorable thing and accepts blame for it and says well you know no i i was the one that was trying to get her to cheat but she's a good kid don't punish her Van Helsing just decides to, like, pitch Dracula a, a, a business plan to, like, mass produce <laughs> these things and sell them to students. Even though he's a teacher? Eh, okay. Fair enough. This is, like, I didn't, I 
what is, he says something like I don't really want to kill you or something. I just want to be rich. Like it's like a weird. Yeah, it's. I mean, and this is another issue that I've had with like a lot of these episodes is characters are sort of inconsistent between episodes. Like mm-hmm. episode one, Van Helsing's one hundred percent focused on trying to kill Dracula, but then like we get to this point in the show, and it's almost like they're buddies, and he doesn't really care anymore. Yeah, and, it, and it's only five episodes that it took to get to that point, too. Yeah, that, that's that's the other jar. Like I like I could understand flanderization of characters and something that's pretty long running, but like yeah, five episodes to do a one eighty like that it seems a little off. Uh, episode six features the sci fi club from Chocula School that's headed by the kid that we can't remember his name, but they're looking for uh, a club room for them to have their meetings in. Uh, apparently there's no room at the high school. So they start looking around and they find this old abandoned like prep school, but they find a room that's like perfect for their club activities. Unfortunately, it's also haunted. Um, the evil spirit that's in there <laughs> kills a couple cops, first of all, which was a, a big tonal shift <laughs> in this show. Um, and then while Chocula and her, her, I guess her crush are working on fixing up the room, uh, the spirit attacks again, pushes the boy out the window, severely hurting him, and then ch- captures Chocula inside a book. Uh, Dracula shows up to rescue her, squares off with the spirit, imploring it to possess him. Um, the spirits uh, turn out to be like all of the negative feelings and emotions that the students had towards studying and, and, and uh, exams and things like that, and I guess manifested in an evil spirit. But they possess Dracula. He flies out the window in bat form into the dawn to turn himself to ash to, to, I don't know, I guess destroy the spirits at the same time. I'm not really sure why that works, but it does. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and we think, oh, no, he's got to be gone for good because his ashes scatter all over the place. There's nothing to collect. Well, fortunately, Chocula manages to get out of the book and finds a dismembered ear in the room from her father that she uses to clone him. Episode seven. Chocula gets a pet panda and tiger. There's like a, I don't know, I guess a, like a freight plane crashes like near their house. These two wild animals just pop out of their boxes and decide to move in with Dracula. She's, you know, playing with them. They're getting along that like all, like most of the episode is them being cutesy with the animals and stuff. And then um, some locals shoot them and they die. And then they have to bury them. And that's the end of that episode. <laughs> He's not lying. <laughs> yeah, no, there's really not much else that happens in that episode. Like, that's that's what it gets boiled down to. Uh, episode 8, Drac goes to the dentist is, is basically what I've titled this. Drac and Chocula end up leaving to go find some dinner. When I say they go looking for dinner, I mean sucking a woman's blood because they also show Dracula in the show eating regular human food a lot. And I didn't really want anybody to get confused about that. <laughs> Uh, sadly, the main course that they're after had too much garlic for dinner and is therefore inedible. They come across an accident. I think somebody got hit by a car or something like that. But essentially, the victim has been injured, is bleeding all over the place, needs a transfusion, a blood transfusion. So, of course, Dracula is going to get, you know, snapped up and he's going to be the one that has to donate blood because, you know, why not? It's funny because they're draining the blood out of the out of the vampire. Ho, ho. At this point, he's been weakened because his blood has been drained out. He has not eaten in a while. He's extremely hungry to the point where he's afraid that he's going to 
die of starvation. And uh, they pass by this clothing store, and I guess his hunger overtakes him because he he jumps through the show window and tries to bite a mannequin and just breaks one of his teeth. So now that he has a broken tooth, the next night he and Chocula go out to a night dentist uh, to get it repaired. But the dentist just turns out to be Blonda, and she charges Drac more money that's than than has ever existed because healthcare. Am I right? <laughs> that episode was set in America. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredibly prescient, some of the stuff that happened in this show. Let's talk a little bit about what this uh, what this kind of is and where it comes from. So, Don Dracula is a manga by Osamu Tezuka that began serializ- serialization in 1979. The TV series aired then from April 5th through April 26th, 1982. So, quite a run. <laughs> Osamu Tezuka is considered the godfather of manga, and often considered the Japanese equivalent of Walt Disney given his significance and influence. He created Astro Boy, among many other popular manga and anime, including the somewhat infamous Kimba the White Lion, which some people point to as an inspiration point or even point of plagiarism for The Lion King. That's like a whole other story, and it falls on one of those Dunning-Kruger sort of charts, where... If you've never heard of it, you think, you know, nah, no chance, right? No way is Disney cribbing from some Japanese lion thing. If you've heard of some of the obvious comparison points, which I feel like I've seen float through the internet over the years in meme form. I, I've definitely seen, like, a couple of YouTube videos of, like, uh, folks that do those um like analysis videos of different movies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a few of people like going through this point by point, trying to prove basically definitively that like, yeah, no, Disney totally stole this idea. And so it's, it's one of those, if if you've, if you've, if you heard of like the obvious comparison points, you think they definitely ripped it, ripped it off. And then there's, if you really dig into it and research it and, and read like, interviews from the Disney people who worked on it and interviews from uh, people in Japan and people in the animation teams and there's like it seems it starts to seem like it's just more of a moving target and maybe a little bit more complicated and not as simple as just they ripped it off it's something interesting to talk about you could do an entire episode of a podcast I'm sure about that that's all I'll really say because I haven't done enough looking into. It. I I have friends like like I have two different friends. Uh, one of them is is uh, Kyle Bird who was on our Godzilla episode who has done like a lot of digging into this and he has come out of it convinced that Disney didn't rip it off. And then I have another friend who has done the exact same amount of digging into it and is convinced Disney did rip it off. So it's it's not open and shut. Quick fun fact about Tezuka. He is the distant descendant of Hattori Hanzo. Oh, he's the guy that made uh, What's-Her-Face's sword and Kill Bill, right? I mean, that's the, <laughs> like, the extremely fictionalized version, sure. But he was like a, a legitimate uh, ninja in the like 1500s. Maybe we'll do a deeper dive into Tezuka someday, but let's steer back towards Don Dracula and what it is and get into its connections to Dragon Ball. 
So Don Dracula was written by Tezuka around uh, when he was finishing his popular adult-oriented manga Blackjack, uh, which is the story of a talented surgeon who practices illegally using unconventional and supernatural techniques. It was dark and moody with the main character Black, uh, Blackjack often receiving no reward or recognition for his good deed, which often involved curing a poor and destitute person for free. Uh, the stories would frequently end with a good person enduring some hardship or even unavoidable death in order to save others. Very kind of dark. Tezuka decided to follow up this serious effort with something light and fun, a slapstick comedy. He wanted to avoid getting stale and telling darker and grimmer stories, uh, which he'd been doing since the end of Astro Boy up to this point, and wanted to return to his earlier forte screwball comedy. It marks a transitional phase for the mangaka as well it's very much a comedy, it has darker themes due to its subject matter. It's perhaps serendipitous that Tezuka's uh, earlier bridge uh, from more lighthearted to more serious was the series Vampires, which ran from 1966 to 1969. Bridge from darker, adult-oriented stories to more lighthearted fare is, again, a vampire manga. Don Dracula is considered one of the lesser works of Tezuka's career, shocker, and the anime fared little better, as only four ep episodes ever actually aired out of the eight produced was originally planned to be a total of 26 episodes. So they got cut short really quick. This owes slightly more to the bankruptcy of the production company's financial difficulties than any specific ratings issues uh, with that quick of a turnaround, but Don Dracula remains nevertheless far from a major hit. Episodes ping-pong between poppy cheer, cruelty, slapstick and even some straight-ahead horror and downbeat morality. Uh, they feature a bunch of standard tropes such as the bumbling dad, the defective detective, a literal Igor, a stalker with a crush, and cute monster girl. It's never been officially licensed in the U.S., so subtitled versions of the show are fan-generated, and the same holds true for the manga itself. All, all translations in English are also fan-generated. Yeah, and then the question is, then, what's all this got to do with Dragon Ball? And for starters, maybe listen to our previous episodes where we already mentioned what it has to do with Dragon Ball. God. But, so rude. But to be less rude, the anime's screenplay comes from Takeo, Takao Koyama. Koyama is a prolific screenwriter and novelist who was born in 1948 in Akashima, which is one of the cities within the Tokyo metropolis, located on the left bank of the Tama River. Eagle-eared listeners might recognize the Tama River as the setting for a couple of different Studio Ghibli films, notably Pompoko, where the indigenous Tanuki population try, in vain, to stop urban development. Akashima is located on the other side of the river from Tama Newtown, like 15 kilometers away. Takayo Koyama graduated from Waseda University in 1972 and joined Tatsunoko Production as a screenwriter. He worked briefly on Don Dracula, eight whole episodes, <laughs> then began writing for Toei, working on Saint Seiya for 73 episodes before working on Dragon Ball beginning with episode 83, replacing Toshiki Inoue, who we discussed a little bit in our Curse of the Blood Rubies commentary. Koyama continued writing for the Dragon Ball franchise, writing the rest of Dragon the Dragon Ball portion of the show, all of Dragon Ball Z, and all of Dragon Ball Z Kai. In 1986, he founded Anime Scenario House, which became a full-fledged company called Brother Nopo or Napo in 1988, and is a school of sorts to train young anime writers. 
He has been the mentor of many screenwriters over the decades, including Keiko Nobumoto, who was the screenwriter for Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo, as well as the scenario supervisor for Kingdom Hearts. Koyama wrote some manga as well, notably the Dragon Ball side stories in the name of Piccolo Daimyo and Great Pride, the Saiyan Prince Vegeta. He also authored a Dr. Slump follow-up called Dr. Slump Returns, but only for a little while. I love that title. That's a good title. (laughs) This is a, he worked on the 1997 Dr. Slump remake, and he authored a remake of one of Akira Toriyama's short manga series, Cashman, which was titled New Cashman. I guess one quick little note, the Dragon Ball side stories are not true manga. They're more accurately illustrated short novellas. And I only know this because I've seen like just a couple of pages of them. They feature lengthy blocks of text with some background illustrations, more so than dialogue-driven writing with the illustrations depicting specific actions. Koyama considers it to be among his most crowning achievements that he's had to create several episodes of Dragon Ball by being handed, handed a single panel of the manga and being told to make an entire episode out of that one panel. He said in a Twitter post, When I arrived at the Toei Animation Oizumi Studio planning office for the next meeting, producer Kozo Morishida uh, handed me a copy of the original manga and said, Koyama-san, can you write a story using just this panel? I saw that a certain panel was surrounded by a circle. The story had to cover exactly that marked point, not before or after. I had to keep the story up to that panel, which was equivalent to about 55 pages. Uh, Though when pressed to answer which episode or episodes these are, he claims he can no longer remember as it was 20 plus years ago. We'll have to keep our eyes peeled for what those might be uh, when we start coming across his episodes. Uh, Something to keep your eyes open for is episodes heavily featuring flashbacks. As Koyama says, his rule of thumb is to use many flashbacks in order to avoid creating your own original story that winds up conflicting with the source material later on. He believes doing so winds up frustrating viewers, and then they won't be able to move past the inconsistency. His greatest fear as a screenwriter his, uh, was catching up to the manga, which we all know happened, and having to improvise and create a story that wouldn't be in the manga at all, which we also all know happened in our <laughs> episodes. Uh, he does, however, state that when working on the movies, of which he's written several, Toriyama uh, has almost no input or even requests. The movies are written so far in advance of where the manga might even be at all uh, that they have to become predictive and are entrusted with making original stories just on their own. Only after they create a script that it is sent to Toriyama for approval, which typically amounts to a rubber stamp. He says Toriyama has good compartmentalization in his head, understanding that the manga is the manga and anime is anime. And as he's the manga artist and is left alone by the anime staff, he should entrust the anime staff to be anime professionals. The anime itself would often just give Toriyama an idea of a villain and request a character design. Though he says he's never worked with Toriyama specifically in a work-related capacity and only knows him from outside the sphere of the studio interactions. Uh, He relates further Akira Toriyama's notorious hermitage, saying that Toriyama once told him he refuses to see any of the anime films in theaters due to what he believes would be a mob scene if he showed up. And he just waits for a home video release and watches them that way. He says in an interview with TV anime guide Dragon Ball Tenkaichi Densetsu, 
that he prefers adapting more dialogue and story-driven portions of the anime as opposed to the fight sequences. Quote, if it's a stream of action scenes one after another, the story can't really take any detours, can it? It's fine before the action starts where you can insert a little bit of a separate story, but during the action, if you just do it normally, it's over before you know it. It was a big pain trying to, to inflate those parts. Uh, he also says an important part of writing a character for him is that the character has a name. He feels he needs a name to connect to and build a character around, and without a name, it's like they don't have a pulse. He seems like he has a pretty good sense of humor, which probably seems obvious as a Dragon Ball writer, but nevertheless, he's prone to introducing himself in English as the biggest screenwriter in Asia, and then pausing and correcting his quote-unquote poor English and saying he means the tallest. That's good. That's a good, like, I could imagine that playing so well coming Absolutely. from... Absolutely. That would, that would kill. Yeah. Uh, he also jokes that he thinks he has the inspiration, or he was the inspiration point for Piccolo, and that his resemblance to the Namekian makes the character easy for him to spotlight in an episode. And that sense of humor and sort of bluntness carries through everything for him, it seems. I was re- reading through even more of his interviews, I saw some pretty fun and interesting anecdotes So, like, when he first interviewed with Tatsunoko, he had to take an aptitude exam and passed, but then outright lied and said he had experience writing screenplays, which he had actually never done before. So, add another person to Dragon Ball who, more or less, had never done their job before. A mangaka who had never written or read a manga. An editor who had never edited. And a screenwriter who had never written or read screenplays. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's amazing that sometimes you think about that, that it didn't just crumble in on itself, you know? No kidding. So he he also, in his interviews, he praises Tatsuo Yoshida, the president of Tatsunoko, as being the first person to have a vision for anime becoming a worldwide export. He says, quote, A large sign was erected near the studio's entrance. On it was written in large letters, Dreams for the Children of the World. So this was a catchphrase for the company founder and first president, Tatsuo Yoshida, which had become the company motto. At the time, I thought, Dreams for the Children of the World? What a bold statement. In this day and age, many people all over the world enjoy Japanese animation, but back then, only a very small number of works such as Astro Boy and the Tatsunoko-produced Speed Racer managed to get exported. I don't think anyone back then ever imagined that a time would come where children the world over would be watching anime, but Mr. Yoshida had vision, foresight. Koyama claims he almost left the industry in the early 2000s, thinking it had become too profit-driven and clogged with inferior product due to it becoming seen as a marketable commodity. The, The irony here a little bit is that there's a lot of people who claim his ubiquity and the proliferation of his mentees has created an anime monoculture, encouraging supposedly different story ideas to adopt similar narrative structures to the ones he uses. Koyama, for his part, is pretty vocally critical of the formulaic nature of anime, which is why he pushes for face-to-face tutelage and coursework rather than merely publishing a book of his techniques, as a lot of his contemporaries have. His frustrations with the industry as a whole had him considering retirement. He just thought it's become so popular 
scene is so marketable that it's watered down and not good anymore. Until he went to Anime Expo New York on an invitation. He was invited to go as one of the guests. And he engaged with many children. And there was one specifically, he told a story where he had this kid just tell him with like tears in his eyes almost, thank you so much. I really love Dragon Ball and, you know, Goku's my favorite. And it encouraged him so much. And he realized that his original mentor, Yoshida, that, that Yoshida's vision had come true. And Koyama claims it helped him refocus on creating these works and realizing they are for children and they're being enjoyed by children the world over. Uh, this commitment to his former employer's vision is at least somewhat at odds with his feelings about Goku, believing that his most famous line and catchphrase, specifically, Ora Goku, loses a great deal when being translated to, I'm Goku. So he he has that idea that it does need to be worldwide enjoyed and enjoyable for children, but he also has a sort of innate desire to keep it Japanese and keep it kind of for himself because he thinks it works best in its original language. Koyama confirmed sub, not dub. <laughs> uh, Koyama also says that knowing Masa Masako Nozawa voices multiple characters, whenever possible, he would try to get them to talk to each other so she would have to perform against herself. He said he does it to challenge her, and also because unlike many voice actors, she doesn't record all of one character and then have that one dubbed in in her headphones and record all of another character. She actually switches back and forth and has a full dialogue with herself, and he likes watching her do that. He believes that there are two great animated characters of the 20th century. This is, this is Koyama, not Jelly and Bikini. Make that clear. He believes there are two great animated characters of the 20th century. In the West, Mickey Mouse, and in the East, Son Goku. Koyama believes that, that Goku's laid-back attitude is extremely appealing and that the character is very easy to accept and enjoy. He also says that he thinks Goku's cute and so he's appealing visually in general and to girls because he's adorable. And that's part of the reason why he's so popular. Koyama acknowledges that, for better or worse, Dragon Ball is the deciding factor in his career and the main driving force behind why he has been considered successful. He understands this is because Dragon Ball's pop because of Dragon Ball's popularity, saying, quote, There was a protege of mine, a successful novelist, who had one of his works made into an anime, but his relatives still wouldn't acknowledge him. But no sooner had he written a single episode of Dragon Ball than they were saying, You're amazing! In fact, when even I say I worked on Dragon Ball and find that I'm popular with, with young people, they'll actually listen to what I have to say, unquote. So, you know, he's, he's one of these guys who says, I worked on this thing and it was a big thing. And for better or worse, that's the reason why anyone listens to me about anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel, it seems to me like he's the type of guy who's pretty self-conscious. Like he understands that what you know the reason why he's famous might be dragon ball but at the same time he had a hand in making it what it is so a little right. bit of give and take there yeah because that's the at the end of the day a screenplay writer for an anime that's being adapted from a manga is adapting and they do have a lot to work from 
but they are giving it a lot of the they're imparting a lot of the style it has in terms of how characters are saying things you know whether it's with like a stage direction of like you know angrily or flusteredly or you know things like that 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 come in screenplays that that sort of give the actors a, a cue for how to say that line or whether they're whether the screenplay writer is is crafting a whole bunch of filler and that filler ends up sort of fleshing out these characters more. I mean, we talk about the the driving episode as being one of our favorite episodes of, <laughs> yeah. of Dragon Ball. And it's it is. It's not only great because it's just so doofy and fun, but like it stays true to who those characters are. Yeah. And so he has left his indelible fingerprints on Dragon Ball. Despite it being so much Toriyama's for sure, Koyama is a big piece of it. So, yeah, general thoughts about Don Dracula. I'm very much not far off from you in thinking that this was a bit of a slog to get through. I was surprised and kind of delighted to find that the subtitles were generally generally pretty good. They, they more just seem to lack just a, a smidge of subtlety to them or something. Like in the episode where, where he has fleas, he says like, oh, I have fleas. And then Chocola goes off and comes back dressed up as like Zatoichi, the blind swordsman. And he's like, not Zatoichi, fleas. And you're like, that... Yeah, there's definitely some there's some stuff that's lost in translation, hundred yeah. percent. But at the same time, like for instance, the the beach episode, like the setup for that episode is so incredibly contrived, just so that they can say, "Oh, fish people came out of the ocean." Like there, and there's just instances like that. Like even in episode one, like they make a big deal about like Van Helsing's hemorrhoids and like how much trouble they cause him, and all, and the like. The big payoff for that is that he. He poops in Dracula's coffin. Like, uh, it's just stuff like that. They they do these elaborate setoffs, and then the payoff is a poop joke. Like, what what's going on? Yeah, here? yeah. Like, poop. I it's not very like. I, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm all in for a joke that's got a long setup as long as the payoff's good. And that was th- those are just not good payoffs. They go to the poop joke well. One too many oh, times. Quite a few times. Yeah, that's the other thing. And it's it's funny because we we talked about how in Dragon Ball we didn't we didn't have any major issue with the with the oolong poop joke, right? Because he what was the name of the candy? I forget. There was like a kind of a clever. There was like a clever name for the candy where it was like I don't know turdsies instead of Hershey's. It, it was. <laughs> wasn't that yeah it's like it's kind of like that parallel though yeah but so i I, it was it was a little more clever it was a little more not important specifically really to the plot and so it's just sort of this thing that's off to the side whereas in don dracula it's like van helsing has dracula cornered and then all of a sudden his butt hurts and he has to go poop Exactly. And I think that's that's probably where the difference is. In in Oolong's case, it's more a, a device that is created 
to ensure that he stays with Bulma and Goku and doesn't just like turn into a bird and fly off when they're not looking. In Don Dracula's case, it's a mechanism to remove him when he's got one of the vampires like cornered where they don't have an escape. And so it feels more like a deus ex machina. Yeah. Even though the machine here is, is his poop factory. <laughs> See, um. that's how you do a good poop joke. <laughs> I was, I was pretty put off in the very first episode when, well, I will say, let me, let me say I was at, at first, my very, very first impression when I when I put on the very first episode was, oh, I'm going to dig this because the theme song rules. Yes, I was going to say that. The music in this show is actually really good. The the theme song composed by Kuni Kawachi, who, like, clicking around on having found his name and then going to his biography – does not have a whole lot of other credits to his name. None that I recognize. Uh, which I think is a shame. Because the theme song slaps. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> I'm sure you could find it on YouTube, honestly. The ending's also pretty decent as well. Yes. So I will say, I, I put this on and I was like, oh, I'm going to like this. Because that theme song is great. And then it like almost immediately starts with, oh no, ugly fat lady. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> and then there's then there's Van Helsing in the airport just being an absolute jerk to just everybody. Yeah. Like he, bites, he bites a random woman on the ass. Yes. And, and like – it's not even because like she's attractive. He says something like "Ew, what an ugly ass," and then bites it. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense. And yeah. then he's like pulling down his pants in the airport and like showing people his ass. He's got a suitcase full of weapons. It's just like what is what is going on here? Right. I didn't. I immediately was like thrown off. I was like, I was like, oh no, Dracula hates fat chicks. So. He's got some problems and then immediately goes over to Van Helsing, who's a jerk. I'm like, wait a minute. Who am I supposed to like here? <laughs> I think just Chocula. I think that's the only one who's supposed to be. Maybe Igor. Yeah, he's fine. He's just kind of a nothing burger, you know. And then, yeah, Chocula or Chocula, however, I, I'm not sure how it's. She, it's funny because the anime draws her with this bluish grayish hair, but if you look at the cover of the manga, she's drawn as having brown hair, making the Count Chocula comparison it's more obvious. Yeah, yeah. Ram Ram home quite a bit more because uh, I, when I heard the name, I immediately went to Google and I was like, "When did Count Chocula come out?" And like it came five out, years before. It came this. out in March of 1971, ladies and gentlemen. So almost ten years before, no, more than ten years. Before the anime, but eight years yeah. before the manga, Tezuka could definitely have been influenced by Count Chocula. I could see it. It's a possibility. Every time she gets, like, frazzled or something, her hair stands up. and It looks like Count Chocula's hair. <laughs> and in the, in the anime, though, I was like, oh, man, that looks so much like, like Bram Stoker's. That is also true. 
It's weird. It's just because of the color of the hair. If you look at the cover of the manga, you're like, oh, that's Count Chocula. If you only watch the show, which I like just did at first, right? I, I found the show and I was like, oh, let's just watch this. You know, you're like, oh, it's we- there's no way. Did this influence Bram, not Bram Stoker, but Francis Ford Coppola? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I very much, I very much doubt Francis Ford Coppola saw an obscure eight episode anime <laughs> from what the if, 80s. Uh, hear me out here. What if they were both inspired by Count Chocula with the shape of the hair? <laughs> Which really just goes to show that maybe Count Chocula is the greatest Dracula of all. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you mentioned it when you were doing the recaps. Episode three is like the highlight. Like, yeah. If, if you're going to try and track this show down, which I think there's a couple of different of the sort of gray market websites that have this streaming on them, I would maybe even start with episode three because it's not like you're going to miss anything if you if you in fact, you'll get more context because it that episode establishes Episode three finally establishes who Blonda is. That's, oh, that's right. Because up to that point, they didn't even name her. Yeah. I She's just that. that lady he accidentally bit in his first night in Tokyo. Which, let's be real. How do you accidentally bite somebody? I don't know. <laughs> if you go and track that, go, if you track this showdown, start with that one. And if you really like that one, Sure, watch the rest of them because it is only eight of them, and there's some things to like here and there. But I, if you're like, ooh, that. if you're watching that episode and you go, ooh, ooh then stop right there because it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, I, I I could get behind that 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 recommendation because like episode four is so weird that it's almost funny just because you're sitting there wondering what's actually going on in the show. I thought that about episode five, too. I'm like, w- this is a whole episode about Dracula cheating on a test? This, the, You know what this the episode five screams to me is um, a manga that's like more like a, a Sunday comic strip, and they're just padding it out for a whole episode. The, the <clears throat> version of this I found <laughs> actually had a couple of chapters of the manga translated oh and it is pretty pretty close to the show really yeah so it's what what do i want to say here you're not you're not missing anything like (laughs) there's there's no there's nothing extra to be gained from reading yes yes i i you know i i will say i would maybe mildly recommend the manga a little bit more just because I like the 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 I like the designs of of Dracula I'll say specifically I think I think this is a good fun uh manga slash anime design of Dracula and Tezuka's art is pretty good and so when you're not seeing it in motion because the animation on this is not great. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it is slightly better just in that static sort of 
way that it is. The issues of the manga that I read were one was one was very similar to the first episode. Like she tracks him down, chases him around the house. That was kind of it. Yep. The other the other one, her boyfriend comes over for dinner. Oh, that was um That was in one of the episodes. Yeah. And talks about how he likes science fiction. And Dracula's like, get out of here. Aliens aren't real. Vampires are. <laughs> yeah. And and then they uh, they try and get some money to have their sci-fi club. And they get, like, robbed by some jerk guys who try and kill her boyfriend. And then it makes Dracula sad. So he goes and beats up those guys and saves them and funds the sci-fi club. He gets he gets stuck in the sun, turned into turned into ashes, and it's a very similar joke to the to the umbrella joke. She sucks him up with a vacuum cleaner, reconstitutes him, and when he gets reconstituted, he's like all shabby and dusty and has like bugs swirling around him. And she's and Chocolate is like, "Oops, there must have been some dust mixed in." Personally, I think the umbrella is a better punchline for that joke. And then, and then the final issue of the manga was that that I read chapter three was was pretty much the one where they get their building, their clubhouse room, and Chocola gets pushed into the book. And then, yes, he has the spirits go into him, and she comes out, and he gets turned into dust, and she clones him from his ear. Cause sci-fi oh, no. club. Uh, from his finger. She clones him from his finger in, in, oh, in the manga. I wonder why they changed that. I don't know. Maybe censorship or something. Who knows? So that was that was the manga. It's pretty similar. It's not it's not too different. I the the company that company I, I don't know what you call it, like when when a fan group has like a name for themselves. Mm-hmm. The people who have translated this to into English are called Golden Rose, and that's Golden Rose with a Z at the end. I didn't look into it because I was like, eh, this is like just more of the same, really. <laughs> um, I would bet if you looked up Golden Rose, Don Dracula, you could probably find this and the rest of their scans of it if you got if you really wanted to get into it. It's not. I, I wouldn't recommend it any more than the show. Again, same same thing. If you read one or two of them and you're digging it or liking it enough, sure, keep going. But you're you're good if you don't like the first couple because it's not going to get any different. <laughs> <laughs> it does not improve. I guess the only character that doesn't that does appear in the anime that does or that does not appear. In the anime that does appear in the manga is Dracula's ex-wife, Carmilla, which is a Dracula lore thing. Because it's like a, it's a Castlevania character. Yep. I think Carmilla is actually like a piece of vampire fiction that predates Dracula. Really? It's like a whole thing. But then it gets it gets like crossbred with Dracula somewhere along the way. I don't really know all the story of it, but so Tezuka is pulling a 
piece of Dracula vampire history into his manga as well. And Carmilla is Dracula's ex-wife. And she, like, shows up at some point and says... And they have arguments about how to raise Chocula. All right. Glad they cut it, then. <laughs> so I can only imagine how that would have gone. I mean, given given how they treat Blonda in the show, I can only imagine how Carmilla would come across. Yeah. So, not great. Um, yeah, episode three is the highlight. I like episode seven because of the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> You bring a you bring a couple of cute cuddly animal characters into a into a show that's aimed ostensibly towards children and have a character like Dracula who has the you know supernatural abilities to potentially save them or raise them or something and then just gun them down and and, and not just gun them down but like show the carcasses with bullet holes in them <laughs> <laughs> like it's extreme. And then I I I know what you're saying about the setup and everything for the the Gilman episode being like so preposterous, but I think in general that's the other two episodes that I had like an okay time with were the spirit in the room episode and the the Gilman episode because it got to a point where I was like, all right, you've you've Already in the first like four or five episodes done every Dracula joke you've got. Yeah. And so it was then only okay to me when you started doing your let's do our version of Dorian Gray and our version of the Gill Man and our version of a poltergeist. And that was the only thing that ever maintained my interest after the first couple episodes did all of the jokes that you could do already. Yeah, I, I think this this manga and this this series suffer heavily from the fact that like there's only so many jokes you can do here. Uh, so yeah, I I was not a huge fan of Don Dracula. I had higher expectations. You know, I know I knew it only ran for eight episodes, and so I had some tempered expectations for the quality of the animation. I was I was expecting that to not be great heading into it. But I had higher expectations for the writing, given who Tezuka is, and I have not read anything else he's done, so I'm not going to base my opinion of Tezuka on Don Dracula, which pretty much everyone who's a Tezuka fan says is one of his lesser things. I mean, when you think of like any kind of media, when you think of, of the, the, the writers and directors and stuff like that, that that make all of this stuff for us, I mean, the, even the most prolific people in those spheres they have duds every once in a while like it's a thing that happens i i I don't feel like anybody should feel ashamed for this i mean i'm kind of looking at it through the prism of you know 40 years in the future Mm -hmm. so yeah a lot of the stuff's a lot of the jokes aren't gonna land with me and then of course there's the the cultural divide that's gonna add some extra layers of of uh i don't understand to it Mm -hmm. like to just to keep myself from just constantly crapping on this um some of the, the the things that i did like about it uh we we did talk about the theme song i like the theme song i like the ending theme uh i thought the character designs other than blonda were pretty good they had like you said their high points are when they went to other sources of horror fantasy and kind of did their own spin on them i thought those were pretty decent 
obviously Dorian Gray over, over the Fishmen, but even the Fishmen, like I'm making fun of it, but it's compared to a bunch of the other episodes, it's still actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. That bit at the end of the last episode at eight about the the joke about the huge uh, healthcare bill was funny for all of the wrong reasons for me. <laughs> you know, you know, there's one other there's one other gag I'll say I'll throw into the just a gag that I'll throw into the into the positive pile. I think it's episode two. It, it might be like episode five. I don't really know when Van Helsing pulls out the big cross in class and wants everyone to draw it and Chocolate has to keep putting on sunglasses <laughs> at night class <laughs> in order to look at the cross. Yeah, that wasn't too bad. The show probably would have been helped if like that bit right at that first episode where they lean into the seriousness of it and then cut back with a joke and like using the art style to sort of show that transition, I think probably would have um, helped this show ratchet up tension just to deflate it with a joke. Yeah, maybe. But you know, overall it is uh it's it's like an interesting I could see how this is a, a writer's like bridge piece. And he had done, you know, Tezuka had done like more comedy centric stuff before, you know, Astro Boy is not super serious or anything. Um but yeah, Blackjack was actually like his second most popular selling manga. And, you know, to come off of something that sounds like it was pretty damn heavy. Yeah. And and come back into something a little a little more light. I could see this as that bridge and sort of rediscovering yourself and figuring out, yeah what works and what doesn't and kind of like a, a palin palate cleanser if you will yeah as we do when we look at like these weird not weird but just when we look at these like one-off things let's you want to slap a, a dragon ball rating on don dracula uh i will give it two stars out of seven both of those stars being episode three and episode seven <laughs> I, I'm kind of with you. There's a part of me that wants to be like, oh, it's, is it as bad as a two? Because I feel like if I gave it a two, to me, a two feels like if I put it into a five star rating, that's a one and a half. And I don't know if it's that bad. So I might call it a three. But then that seems like I'm almost saying it's almost good. <laughs> I'll be slightly more generous because I do think. I thought a couple of things were maybe like a little more interesting than than you did. Uh, maybe just because I'm, you know, slightly more of a horror person, and you know, it's another sort of different take on Dracula himself. I'll be slightly more generous. I'll give it a three out of seven. All right. That, See, then that averages to two and a half, which is kind of what we were going for. That would be a that would be an on a five star scale. It would be a two. It's it's something that was not the absolute worst. It was not. Now, if there had been 50 episodes of this, I might have only watched eight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. If I finished the first episode and then there was like another 25 to go, I'd have been like, I don't think I could do this, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's Don Dracula. And that's our Dragon Balloween. 
I had a decent time doing this and stepping away from Dragon Ball specifically and doing some yeah. other stuff. Uh, we'll we'll figure out some fun stuff to do again next year with this. You know, we could do like <clears throat> for our mini sods, we can do like our each of our ten scariest moments or ten scariest characters and get maybe a little more in line with Halloween that way. And then I don't know. We'll we'll try and see if we can maybe do. Another, I I think it's not a bad idea to do like a commentary and a discussion episode. So no, I think it's pretty good. I I definitely had a lot of fun doing the the commentary episode, um, and just digging into something that I'm really unfamiliar with was a nice change of pace. And so we'll we'll try and do something something similar to that. There's enough people that have worked on Dragon Ball in some capacity right this was this this was the screenplay writer and a and a brief cameo from Toriyama I mean we can do voice actors we can do can do uh people who did the score we can do uh directors I mean there's a million different ways we can just pick a random person who did something else I mean just voice actors alone opens up tons of options right and it just gives us an opportunity to talk about just something other than Dragon Dragon Ball and and give us and our listeners a taste of other things that exist out there because I I say this to like Godzilla fans all the time why just limit yourself to one thing there's there's more manga out there than just Dragon Ball and and to get even more niche with it there's more battle manga out there than just dragon ball and there's and there's more you know slapstick gag battle manga out there and anime than just dragon ball and there's there's a whole wide world of other things to experience so why limit yourself to just the one franchise it's a genuine pearl of wisdom there i'm impressed i you know i I make a mistake and have one of those every once in a while um so that'll do it i think unless you got anything else to add i think i've covered everything i needed to will bikini and i ever revisit don dracula no (laughs) will we track down the remaining manga that we haven't read also no no. (laughs) will we have a fun-filled halloween Possibly trick-or-treating, possibly handing out candy. We'll just throw some candy out the spaceship. Yes. Hey, that candy will eventually make it to somebody. That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Find out next time. Join us next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. 
like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share it with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership.